And what goes into the naming of the trails? Is it too much for me to ask that one be named after me after all this? Or is that... <laughs> yes, she's nodding her head vigorously. No. <laughs> everybody's been waiting for. I'm back at Fontenelle Forest. I have found my way. I am not lost. I've been found and I'm honored to be joined by Michelle Faust, Director of Resource Stewardship for the forest here. And we just came off of a full-fledged tour that she gave me and I've learned more about trails than I ever knew before. So thank you for doing that. And she held my hand and got me home safe. So, and it wasn't even close to five, but no, very interesting discussion. So we're going to talk about that, but Michelle, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you for having me and wonderful to be back out. I did a whole podcast on getting lost on the trail. Got a lot of attention on that podcast that I wasn't expecting. Got a couple emails from some folks here. So I know people are listening, which is the good thing. And so you graciously invited me out and gave me the full tour and under your purview as the entirety of the forest and the grounds and everything you were telling me from offices to some residences that are here to a whole bunch of things that people probably don't think of. But I guess, first of all, just to answer the question, what happens when you get lost in Fontenelle Forest, we can answer if I would have called that day, I'd have had gracious folks answering the phone and they probably could have guided me back from when I told them if I was by a sign, that would have been the first option. How often does that happen? I, you know what? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, the more people we have here, the more calls we get. It varies between maybe one every couple of weeks to yeah. one a week or two. Okay. Not a lot, but on occasion. And basically, if I wasn't able to have been guided back by phone, you have some back trails and some shortcuts and some things that the staff are all familiar with that I, I would have pretty easily been found. <laughs> yeah, in a dire situation, we can come find people. Yes, I wouldn't have had to spend the night in the forest. Nope. Yes, so we can all go to sleep tonight. We can all rest easy and we can all come out to the forest and, and not worry about that. But basically, the first interesting thing was just we talked about the map and we'll get into that. But the actual trails themselves, there isn't just one particular type. You've got things that have been done by a company that makes trails to natural, and I forget the term, that switchbacks mm -hmm. that you guys change depending on flooding and other things in nature. But why don't you just give us an overview of physically what the trails are here? Yeah, we have three main types of trails. So we have our boardwalk. We have the mile-long Riverview Boardwalk out of the Nature Center. We also have one that's about two-thirds of a mile down on our floodplain. So those are wood surface, primarily flat, low slope. We then also have what's called armored trails, and that is crushed limestone pressed into the ground, and that creates a more stable surface that's less prone to erosion. And then we have our natural surface trails or our dirt trails. And because of our soil, the less soil, which is really highly erodible, it's wind blown, it's glacial squished, that is pretty susceptible to getting pulled up on feet and rain and wind. And so basically 
that lust soil you were telling me is only found here in this area and in what off the Yellow River in China, did you say? Yeah, so along the Missouri River here in the U.S. and yeah. also along the Yellow River in China. And part of the issue with the map or putting together a definitive map is the changes that happen in the trails. Yeah, we're needing to change some of our trails more frequently than other places that are really hard surface. So we have trails that have been in place for 80 years that really need a little bit of love and a little bit of work. So when you go from having a few people a year to 100,000 visitors through the nature center, that's a big change in how a trail is used. So depending on where the trail is, that kind of tells us what we need to do to help improve it. And you have been here 11 years, yeah. and you come from Colorado, actually, so you know Rocky Mountain, serious, huge nature, <laughs> and I know you like it here and enjoy your responsibilities. But as we were walking along and talking about the podcast and the trails and things, one of the points that you made was, for instance, wherever we were at that point, a tree had fallen and just knocked out you know, portion, and you have these natural occurrences and interferences that might precipitate an instant change of trail. And you guys can do these switchbacks even with the flood related erosion. So it is, it's a challenge and you admitted this and other people have said this, it's somewhat harder than you might think to put together a trail map at a place like this specifically. Yeah, yeah, with changes in the physical locations of the trails, some of them are on a very small scale, so it wouldn't show up anyway, but also the shape of Fontenelle Forest, fitting it onto a piece of paper is really difficult, Yeah, which is why you end up with trails squished together, and it's hard to see sometimes. And basically, up here by the Nature Center, where we're at now, looking over the beautiful forest as we record this, is the place that the average person needs to get back is where they parked and needs to get back to leave. And so I was driving over here and I was like, what are they going to think about this? And how's this going to go? And what am I going to say? And if you listen to the podcast, I did essentially a solo 15 minutes or so. But I was telling Michelle, I recorded every portion of my experience and it was over a half hour and I cut out about half of it. But one of the things I thought, oh, should there be different color-coded things? And then we got talking about that, and there's so many different trails. It's hard. You know, there's not enough colors on the Roy G. Biv to differentiate. So that presents a whole thing of challenges. Yeah, being able to differentiate the trails on the map, either colors, symbols. We have a lot of trails. We have 17 miles here yeah. at Fontenelle Forest, another seven at Neil Woods. So it makes it hard to, to differentiate on the map visually when you have that many in a small area. And sometimes trails are shut down for maintenance. When we were when I was out here too, it's okay, this one, you can't go any farther. There was something you told me about when I got off track over by the river. There was supposed to be a sign there that was not there at that point that basically said this is the end of the trail. Yeah, so there is one final loop that you can get back to the nature center where Chickadee and Hawthorne intersect. And there used to be a sign there stating that. So when I went back out after I heard your podcast, that sign was not there. Yeah. So So it wasn't my fault. (laughs) (laughs) I have her on tape going through 
Michelle took wonderful notes, and so I felt very heard and seen, and I appreciate that, and it was interesting. So we discussed some of the signs, which, again, I talked about it the first time. It's a fine line between it's the charm of it and the cool part of it is you're really out in the forest and this isn't a guided tour where everyone's on their phone or you're following a path but some of our discussion was perhaps some of the signs rustic though they are and some of them you were telling me did used to have this way back to nature center and things fall off things get vandalized and just the signs you were telling me too it's hard to keep up maintenance on those with all these changes too. You can't shut down one trail and then change all these maps and the tabletop maps. Do you even know how many kiosk signs are out there at all? Uh, Probably 10, 20 or? Yeah, I don't know offhand. I I have an inventory of the kiosks, but they're not accurate anymore. In addition to the kiosks, we have the trail post signs at all the intersections. So those were able to, to keep up to date and we're able to keep that going. But yeah, the two nature center signs have either fallen off or been taken and those kinds of things. And it's just, again, one of those things. But you've got the inlay that's got up closer to the nature center, but there isn't striking me as an obvious, simple way to to lay it out and you were talking about too, for a long time, this was almost like a club environment. It was a smaller, group of people who would come here and it wasn't as well known and then in recent years it's over 100,000 visitors a year and so you're dealing with a lot more people which leads to a lot more erosion on the trails which leads to maintenance of those trails and it's a slippery slope no pun intended of one issue leads to three other issues so how do you Yeah, and one of the things that we did starting in 2016 or 17 is we contracted with a company to come do a trail assessment. Look at our trails, what do we need to do, how can we improve it? And they left us with not only improved trails, but also a playbook of how to create more sustainable trails. So as we are able to tackle new trails projects, as we have the time, the money, the equipment, all of the resources to do that, we know how to do it now so that they'll last longer. So in the past, we were using sometimes deer trails that just turned into people trails because people used them so much. So we'd mark it and put it on a map. So now we're being more intentional about how our trails go in where they go in. We just rerouted Hickory Trail and we're going to call it Beaver Chew Trail. That took over a year. Wow. It doesn't look like it should have taken that long and the work that people saw only took about one to two weeks, but it takes about a year to be able to plan it out. We need to see it in all seasons. We need to see it with precipitation and we need to know what would be going on and then how are we going to put that trail there? Yeah, it's one of those things, who would have thunk it, but the physical maintenance of it and what it takes. How much of your time is spent on just the trail maintenance and issues and things? That's a great question. During the growing season, there's a pretty good amount of time spent brush cutting or mowing trails. We are able to use our tractor to mow a good portion of our trails. 
But then you've got like the erosion issues or a tree falls on a trail, especially in our high hiking seasons. There's constantly trail work that yeah. we're working on. As we're doing our restoration work, we've got an eye on our trails. How can we improve our trails as we're doing restoration? So we try to put all of the types of work we're doing together in whatever location we happen to be in at that time. Huh. And Michelle was also telling me about she didn't think this foliage season was a great one because part of was the drought that had happened earlier has an effect on that. Is that right? Yeah, the drought there. Nobody really knows exactly how the leaves change color, all the steps that go into that. But I would say that the drought definitely had a role to play in that this year. And I asked if the density of the forest and where the location was because she was saying that Neil Woods for foliage lovers might be better than here though it's beautiful here too and was when I was here but apparently Neil Woods is awesome for foliage too but part of it is it's got the open spaces and more viewpoints that offer more perspective and different trees but I asked if the density of the forest here had any effect and she was stumped by that question and I, I was very do not proud know. of that yeah I don't know <laughs> and you I asked if you knew every trail and could get back you said you could but that it took about eight years of time to, and all the work that you'd done off the trail to really be that familiar where you know every inch of the forest trail wise is that I probably knew all the trails before that yeah but because the past eight years I've been focused on the outside work it's been ingrained right. so I could probably end up at some point in the forest and get back to where I need yeah, to be in a reasonable time yeah yeah And then the thing I found interesting, too, on there's not restrictions, but if there's a deer carcass in one particular area, you can do something about it. But if it's in another part, you can't. And so you're dealing with these eco, not rules, but just best practices. And there's a lot of different things that go into this. Yeah. So our three main tenets of our mission are conservation, education, and recreation. So our primary focus is conserving the land, wildlife, plants, all of it. But we also want to allow for that recreation aspect. So if there is a deer dead completely on the trail, we can typically get that with the tractor and move it out of the way. So if the deer dies on the far side of the stream where we can't get to, it's just gonna stay there. Oftentimes there are dead animals not far off the trail. People can smell it, sometimes they can see it. But those dead animals are are part of that system and can create its own mini ecosystem right there. So we would rather nature do its thing in that case. Uh, But we do understand that it's really hard to walk over a dead deer. And then what is the biggest issue with the trails? Is it natural flood-related things? Is it just the wear and tear of the years? Or... Is it different depending on what type of trail it is? Those crushed limestone, what you said, those are going to last a long time, it seems. Other ones may come and go depending on things, but is it just the natural passage of time or what takes a toll on trails more than anything? It's the combination. Yeah. So it's bioerosion. So people, animals, turkeys and deer love our trails. Okay. In addition to the wind and then the water following the path that the people and the deer and the turkeys and raccoons and everybody are already taking. So when you don't have a bunch of people on a specific trail, you don't have necessarily 
a runway for that water to run off of and for other things to follow. So as a path is created, it's easier to walk through for everybody. Yeah. The more a path is used, the more likely it is to then eventually become eroded. So, um, Child's Trail is not named for children. It's it for a man. Not. I've learned yes. that today. Yeah, so Child's Hollow is named for Charles Childs, who had a sawmill and he had some cows up on the hill in a pasture. Some of our trails are historically named. Some of them are named based on wildlife. You can see, for example, Gray Squirrel. Yeah. That trail over from Camp Wakanda is there or is named that because you can see gray squirrels off of it. Uh, Beaver Chew Trail, the new one that just got put in. new trail alert. There are actually some beaver chews at the end of that trail that you can see the beaver activity. Yeah. Stream Trail, that one runs along the stream. Marsh Trail along the marsh. Some of our trails are just location specific. So we don't have a specific naming convention for our trails. And then the boardwalk at least I because I hadn't been here as I said on the the last one since like high school era mid 90s so it'd been a long time and I don't believe the boardwalk was out there then and that's another issue on the trails as we were talking about the steepness or whatever you want to call it you were saying it's hard to even put that out because what's difficult or challenging for you is different than someone else and so it's hard to even get that into and you do have a trail guide but what about the challenging aspect? Do you have a guideline or a baseline of how you rate or how you describe them? Yeah, our trail descriptions are pretty general. Yeah. I think one of them references a gentle slope. Yeah. So it's not super helpful for somebody really looking for how difficult is this trail. It's um, not gentle if you're falling down it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you said, what's gentle for me is not going to be gentle for a six-year-old trying to be mindful of how that description is going to be interpreted by different people is important. Working on the accessibility of our information and our maps is something that we're really looking at getting done. Appreciate your time. And if we can't at least name a trail after me, what about just Podcasters Hollow? And then we can build the (laughs) legend and in a hundred years, they'll be saying to revolutionize the forest or something. I got to get something. Bring it to the (laughs) team. I will let you know. I don't believe that, but I, well. Oh no, I absolutely will. That'll be a topic at our department meeting tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. I've caused you all enough trouble. I don't know that I need to get in on this now, but Michelle Foss, Director of Resource Stewardship at Fontenelle Forest. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time and the tour and all that you do. It's a wonderful landscape. Thanks, Tony.